listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Only one Civil War battle has its own magazine. It's the Battle of Gettysburg. With coverage like that, with hundreds of books on the topic, surely there is no more to be written about what happened in the first three days of July 1863. But wait, a trio of authors, Eric Wittenberg, J. David Petruzzi, and Michael Nugent, have come up with yet another approach to the battle. It's a book called One Continuous Fight, The Retreat from Gettysburg, and the Pursuit of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, July 4 through 14, 1863. We'll be talking with one of those authors, Michael F. Nugent, about what happened after the Battle of Gettysburg, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a beautiful Friday afternoon in May. 2009. It's commencement day here at the university, but no legal obligation commences here. A reminder that I'm not speaking on behalf of the university, nor does it speak for me. Our guest speaks for himself. No obligations incurred in any direction there. The legal nonsense out of the way. Uh, Yes, today is commencement day. It's the end of our spring term. The students will be uh, graduating. The faculty will be wearing their, uh, their various academic regalia I will get to take out from the closet uh, for its semi-annual visit my absolutely fabulous bright pink gown that indicates I have a degree from Harvard University and there we take care of yet another of the weekly rituals reminder of my uh, incredibly impressive pedigree Uh, that and a dollar fifty will get a cup of coffee locally uh, as the university struggles through these hard times we're in, uh, graduation is a happy day. The students are happy, uh, but looking forward with trepidation to what happens next. And the faculty, uh, likewise, are all wondering what will happen in the year ahead. Will the state of North Carolina come up with the funds to hire back all the fixed-term faculty? What will happen to new programs that need to be started uh, it's, uh, there are times when administering an academic department uh, gives one insight into what, what it must have been like to try to 
defend the Confederacy in 1865 when there are plenty of demands and not enough resources. Uh, that's the case in any institution anywhere, but it's uh, increasingly severe uh, here in 2009. We're all looking forward to better times, perhaps by the end of the year, when uh, we can go back to teaching our classes and writing our books and talking with other authors without uh, fussing quite so much about where the next uh, uh, funding will come from for the various projects that, that need to be done on campus. But enough gloom and doom talk. Let's move ahead. Uh, in these uh, uh, troubled economic times, let me share with you uh, an offer that was made last week on the show. Our, our guest last week was Dana Schof, uh, editor of Civil War Times uh, I almost called it Civil War Times Illustrated, the name it started by back in centennial days. Uh, and he was kind enough to offer a discount subscription to listeners to this show. So if you missed that show, a quick reminder that if you get in touch with Civil War Times before the end of May 2009 by calling 1-800-435-0715 and using uh, this, the following promotion code G9E, WTR. Uh, if you use that, you can subscribe to Civil War Times for uh, approximately half price for uh, eighteen dollars and sixty-five cents. Uh, eighteen sixty-five, an easy number to remember. Uh, that's not a paid promotional announcement; just something being passed along. They were nice enough to do that, and I hope uh, some listeners will uh, feel inclined to take advantage of that. If uh, since last week. Uh, I've continued to travel around talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln in this bicentennial year of his birth and had the opportunity last Tuesday to visit Doylestown, uh, Pennsylvania, and the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable. And I want to put a word in for anyone in that area, northwest of Philadelphia, uh, find a way to stop in and see the Civil War Museum that the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable operates. Uh, those of you who belong to a roundtable or have heard our roundtable-based shows, we've done, I think, a couple of those, know that there are as many different formats for these organizations as there are individual chapters. It's really not uniform at all. The Bucks County Civil War Roundtable is unique in that they received a large bequest from a former member uh, who asked them uh, to use the money to buy a house and turn it into a museum, which they have done. And they have some very interesting artifacts. They have a nice library of Civil War titles. Uh, quite an interesting uh, setup and not something that you see uh, many other such groups around the country. Uh, very nice folks. It was a great pleasure to visit them. And especially it was nice to meet uh, Bob from New York, a friend of Civil War Talk Radio and the creator of the CWTR.org website, CWTR.org, where you can learn more about this show, where you can find a link to the actual uh, recording website of the show, which otherwise has a difficult URL to find, and where uh, hopefully this summer, as the academic load lightens, I'll be able to add more information about past and future shows, and you can learn more about uh, what we do here at, at Civil War Talk Radio. But uh, very nice to visit the, the folks at the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable, and I certainly appreciate their hospitality. I will be speaking next Tuesday, May 12th, in Richmond, Virginia, at the Civil War Roundtable there. If you're 
in the area. They had a very nice event last week as they begin to kick off the sesquicentennial uh, recognition in Virginia. And I was unable to get to that, but uh, I understand it went very well. Uh, I will be in Louisville, Kentucky at the Filson Historical Society on May 16th, uh, Saturday, and perhaps hope to see some of you there. And then uh, taking the summer off to recover and resuming October 22nd in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, uh, perhaps talking military instead of uh, Lincoln for a change uh, with the uh, Dorsey Pender chapter of the Civil War Roundtable. And a final bit of news, uh, which is a reminder that your suggestions are always welcome. And if you wish to contribute or simply pick up a copy of uh, of either Did Lincoln Own Slaves or All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, uh, a contribution of $20 to the show uh, using the PayPal address civilwartr at aol.com uh, and a request for either book, uh, and I'll be happy to send it, uh, sign it if you wish, and uh, use the funds to buy the books for next week's show. Well, let's get to today's show and book uh, after all that news. And uh, welcome our guest, Michael F. Nugent. Uh, Mr. Nugent, are you there? I am. Thank you very much, Jerry. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you for, for being on the show. Do you go by Michael or Mike okay? No, no Mike is fine. Wonderful. Um, I've known some Michaels who are particular about that, so I always <laughs> like to ask. Um, uh, well, Mike, you've written uh, a book here uh, with two other authors, Eric J. Wittenberg and J. David Petruzzi, who have both been on the show, so it's good to complete the trifecta and have you here today. Um, before we talk about the book, let me just ask you a few questions. You and I haven't had a chance to, to meet. Um, is this the first Civil War book you've been part of? This is the first book-length project that I've been a part of, yes. I've done some other work. Some, uh, I've done some articles here and there and done some writing for some various websites. But this was the first attempt that I've had at a, at a full-length book. So I was uh, extremely lucky to be paired up with J.D. and Eric uh, on, my, on my first outing here. They are uh, certainly old hands at the field uh, and have written quite a bit. Uh, Eric certainly has written a lot about the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac, among other things. Uh, did you know them before this project? How, how did the three of you get connected? Well, we've been friends for quite a while, actually. I, I first met J.D., uh, while I was in the process of researching some of my own family's Civil War service, uh, especially regarding a great-great-grandfather who served in the 6th United States Cavalry. So I connected with J.D. when he had his uh, popular Buford Boys website, which covered John Buford's division. Uh, we had some email correspondence back and forth and eventually met during a tour of uh, the Antietam battlefield, actually, that Eric was along with as well. Um, we found that we not shared not only this interest in Civil War era cavalry, but in some of the more obscure cavalry actions of the war. And we spent more and more time together uh, researching different aspects of different battles and tracking down some strange and out-of-the-way places that most folks probably wouldn't bother doing. Uh, we found that the more and more we went to Gettysburg, the more we spent time off the National Park, uh, looking especially at the retreat because it's just a fascinating story and realized that really nothing had been really done about the retreat. So many of the traditional histories and essentially on the afternoon of July 3rd 
and the readers are just left hanging, essentially, as to the aftermath of the battle. And there's a similar phenomenon in, in Lincoln's studies where the world ends on April 15, 1865. Exactly. Uh, uh, so, so people don't know what happens after the battle. Uh, when you're not writing about uh, Civil War cavalry or, or the, the retreat, uh, what, else could, what else do you do? I'm a retired United States Army officer. I retired from, uh, I had uh, about 13 years of active duty and retired out of the reserves a few years ago. And I'm a police officer. I'm the lieutenant for the Westbrook, Maine Police Department. Uh, uh, Westbrook, Maine. Uh, where? Remind me where Westbrook is. Westbrook borders Portland and South Portland. Okay, that's right. Um, so uh, I, I have the opportunity to head up that way most summers. Uh, my wife's family lives uh, some in Falmouth, some in Bath. And oh, sure. It's a beautiful part of the country. It, it, it really is, and uh, and there are Civil War routes there, too, as well. Uh, we go by Brunswick and the uh, omnipresence of Joshua Chamberlain. Uh, I'm one of the uh, guides at the museum up there in my spare time. Really? Yes. It's one of the things I like to do when I have the opportunity to go up and, and take folks through the house up there and tell that story. It, it, have you been doing that for a long time? I have. I've been it, doing it, that for quite a while. It's conceivable that maybe we have met, uh, uh, perhaps when I visited the house uh, the first time, which would have been at least 10 years ago, but uh, uh, a very interesting place, and, and one that, that certainly changed radically after the, uh, after the movie came out and, and people had suddenly heard of him. It, it is. I was not part of the uh, museum at that time. Uh, I wasn't living here in Maine right then when the movie was out. However, uh, the old hands will say that in the years prior to the movie, they would get, in the course of a summer... Uh, 500 or 600 visitors. Right. Uh, the year following the release of the Gettysburg movie, they got about 5,000 visitors. <laughs> so it, it drastically changed uh, things for the museum, but also enabled them to uh, accelerate the pace of some of their restoration efforts and and do a, a really superb job of restoring the house and preserving the house. And so it's good they were able to take advantage of that. Well, that's the part of Gettysburg that that people know. Everybody listening to the show knows uh, what happened on Little Round Top in the stand of the 20th Maine. But as you point out, uh, after the, the sun goes down on July 3rd, the, there's a, a paragraph or two, Lee goes back, river rises, river falls, he retreats. Uh, see my next book on the Overland Campaign, and that's the end of it. Um, but your book starts there uh, uh, with July 4th. Uh, so let, let me jump in with, with the first substantive question. Uh, why didn't Meade just go right over to the attack on July 4th with Lee's army uh, uh, torn apart by Pickett's charge, uh, ripe for the picking? Why, why did Meade not choose to attack right then? Well, Meade certainly gets a, a great deal of criticism uh, for not mounting a, a more aggressive pursuit. But we, we take the position that that is largely uh, 2020 hindsight. I think we have to give Meade the benefit of the doubt in several areas. First of all, he takes command of the Army literally a few days prior to the battle in the midst of this Gettysburg campaign. His own Army suffers enormous casualties during the battle. He loses, uh, amongst others, three of his key corps commanders. He has to determine what Lee's real intentions are 
it's not immediately clear, I don't believe, that Lee is in full retreat. Lee has to deter, or Meade, excuse me, has to determine, is he in fact retreating? Is he falling back to a defensive position in the South Mountain, perhaps? What exactly is going on? And he's still burdened by this dual duty that he's been tasked with of not only going after Lee's army, but in keeping the Army of the Potomac between Lee and the city of Washington. So Meade has his hands full, and I think it's easy, given the benefit of 2020 hindsight and being able to sit back in the comfort of an easy chair and saying, oh, well, Meade should have been more aggressive and attacked with all his available forces right then and there and perhaps put an end to Lee's army at Gettysburg. I don't you, think... You don't think that would have worked out that way? I, I don't think so at all, and I think, it's, I think Meade made sound decisions based on the information that he had at hand. Well, if, if just just taking chronologically, if we look at July Fourth, uh, the immediate aftermath of the battle, what did happen? Uh, what happened on both sides of the lines? The, the very the, the day right after the battle. Well, I, as as the Confederates start to retreat, Meade does, I, I believe, what is a, a sound decision, and immediately has the Federal cavalry in pursuit of the retreating Confederates, and probing along to see exactly what the roots of retreat are and exactly what Lee's intentions are. It's not, uh, as I said earlier, it's, it's not immediately clear that Lee is, in fact, in full retreat. But the cavalry, which is you know, part of their traditional job, goes after them to determine that. I think that it is largely uh, ignored by a lot of the more, uh, what I like to call the Reader's Digest versions of the battle, where somehow things just end. There's this, there's this incredible ten days that follows, including uh, nearly two dozen different engagements along the route. They're largely cavalry battles, but eventually the uh, infantry forces are up and involved as well. So, uh, does Lee actually begin to retreat immediately on July fourth? Uh, the, re- the retreat begins. Uh, he, he meets with uh, his commanders. He meets with John Imboden. They begin. John Imboden begins the task of, of evacuating the wounded soldiers. Um, on by the time he gets organized and up and moving, uh, that that doesn't begin until late in the morning. Uh, however, you know they've got awful, awful conditions to deal with. Uh, just compounding all the other miseries, the the skies open up and there's a torrential downpours for days that turn the roads into quagmires. Uh, just heap the suffering upon these guys that have already suffered enormously uh they have no no comfort from the from the elements it's just just a nightmare of a scene but that begins right away so the uh so the the wagon train begins its retreat with the, the wounded but the the army will follow shortly what we'll do now is take a short break and we'll come right back talk more about the retreat of Lee's army and the pursuit by Meade's forces after Gettysburg when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The wagon train of wounded from the Confederate Army at Gettysburg stretched 17 miles. How did it escape from Pennsylvania back to Virginia? 
We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to EarthShare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by EarthShare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael F. Nugent, co-author with Eric Wittenberg and J.D. Petruzzi of One Continuous Fight. It's a book that tells the story of the retreat from Gettysburg and the pursuit of Lee's army after that battle. As we discussed in the first segment, it's a, a story that is often skipped over, the great epic tale of Gettysburg has been told hundreds, not thousands of times in print, but what happens afterward uh, usually doesn't get told in much detail. Um, Mike, in the beginning of your book, you discussed the bibliography, uh, historiography of, of, uh, of the retreat from Gettysburg, and there actually was a book not too long ago, um, uh, Kent Brown's book on, on Lee's retreat and the, the logistics of Lee's retreat. Right. Were you working on this book when that came out? We were. We were. Uh, we had begun the our, doing the research into our book and done some of the writing. Our original intent is, was a little bit different than the way things ended up. Originally, we had thought about doing uh, essentially a a tour guide so that you could follow along the routes of the retreat, both the wagon train of the wounded as well as the main retreat of Lee's army. Uh, follow along that route and tell the story along the way, see, see the places where these things happen, because this is all well off the National Park and not marked by uh, any wayside markers or monuments for the most part. The more we dug into this and the more research we did and the more we learned, we realized that this was really worthy of a, of a full-length book treatment. So uh, we changed our focus a little bit, and rather than a, a slightly more modest effort that it originally started out, we ended up with... Uh, 500-page book out of it. But we were working on it about the same time. Did, and I've had the experience of working on a project and then somebody else publishes something on a closely related topic, close enough where you think, oh, well, there goes that opportunity. I've got to redesign. Did, did you have that 
sensation when when Brown's book came out? Well, actually, no. We were, it, the, I think the two books are actually very complementary. Um, Kent's focus is is significantly different than the focus of our book. I mean, the subtitle of his book is Lee Logistics in the Pennsylvania Campaign, and his focus on the logistical aspects of that is really his book strength. I mean, he's done meticulous research with that book, and it's really quite a piece of work. Our book, on the other hand, uh, really is an emphasis on the uh, the tactical aspect of things and the battles that take place along the way. So they get... Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I should mention to uh, the listeners your, your reference to a tour guide that this book does include uh, a, a tour guide, a driving tour of the retreat route, and we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later, but it's it's one of the nice features of this. Um, one, well, when the the retreat uh, begins, the, we started talking about the, the Confederate wounded being evacuated by wagon train, and uh, uh, the Confederate cavalry commander, uh, Imboden, is put in charge of this. You mentioned that he is in charge of this. He's not part of Stuart's regular cavalry organization because Stuart didn't like him, um, which struck me as an interesting observation. That did, did the Confederate Army actually work on such a informal basis that a commander doesn't care for somebody, so you're not in my division? I don't know if I would quite go th- th- that far. Uh, uh-huh. However, it, it's pretty clear that there were some differences between Imboden and Stuart, although Imboden is clearly a very capable cavalryman. Uh, he's given this task, uh, uh, which is uh, just a horrendous uh, undertaking, and really rises to the occasion. I think the retreat from Gettysburg is probably in Bowden's really finest hour. He does remarkable service. He organizes the retreating uh, wagon trains of the wounded soldiers, intersperses that column with his available cavalry and artillery assets to defend that as a retreat, and does does remarkable job to get them to Williamsport, and to organize them once they're in Williamsport for the initial defenses there. Now, Williamsport is is the crossing of the Potomac that Lee Lee's army is going heads toward to, to try to get back to uh, uh, to safety. Is how far is it from Gettysburg to Williamsport? Um, straight line distance. You know, I, I'd be hard pressed to to uh, actually give you a, an answer. The because of the the routes that. Um, have to be taken. The, for example, the wagon train of the wounded uh, route ca- covers a distance of about almost 50 miles. It's just under 50 miles. Uh, so they they have uh, quite a distance to go. Again, remembering that they're traveling in open wagons in terrible weather on roads that are largely turned into swamps. So, how many days did it take them to cover that? Well, they begin. The, you know, they're they're underway and moving late in the afternoon of the fourth. Uh, by the time they get actually get into uh, Williamsport there in by the uh, in the, the day of the sixth by the by the time they're actually consolidated in there and starting to organize so that that's uh, and they they go pretty much steadily day and night to do that I imagine absolutely yes and Apparently, civilians attacked the wagon train at one point. There, there's a great story uh, that, that occurs in Greencastle. Uh, it's it's one of the interesting aspects of the retreat. Uh, there's certainly it's some things that are more commonplace in modern warfare. You hear about guerrilla actions. You hear about uh, night fighting. You hear about urban fighting. But those are things that you don't largely associate with the Civil War. However, all three occur. 
um, during the retreat from Gettysburg. And this idea of guerrilla actions takes place as the wagon train rolls into, into uh, Greencastle early in the morning of the 5th. Um, as the wagons are rolling down the main street of Greencastle, uh, a group of citizens under uh, the leadership of a fellow named Tom Pauling, combined with some cavalry troops, attack the, uh, the wagon train and with, largely with axes and run out into the streets and chop the spokes out of the wagon wheels, dropping the wagons in the streets. They're supported by some folks under Captain uh, Ulrich Dahlgren from the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry. No, and and the Confederate cavalry eventually drive these people off. Correct. But there, so there's there's fighting as they go. The uh, now the the route. I mean, reading this book enlightened me in, in a number of ways. One was I'd always wondered how the army retreated with all these wounded people along with them. But you point out that that the wagon train took a separate route, uh, a roundabout route first to the west, then to the southwest, and finally the south, uh, sort of a big semicircle uh, back to Williamsport. But the main army did not follow the same route. Is that correct? That's correct. There's two, there's two main axes of retreat, retreat. The, the route that the wagon train takes, and then a separate route that the main uh, body of the army takes. So the wagon train goes, goes by itself, and does uh, Meade send cavalry after it? To try to intercept it? Absolutely. There's, there are cavalry forces that are, are in pursuit of all the retreating Confederates, the, the wagon train as well as uh, the, the main body of retreat. And there are, are several engagements along the way um, at Cunningham's Crossroads, for example, at, you know, in, as the one I mentioned in Greencastle, where the uh, wagon train is attacked by elements of the Federal cavalry. And then uh, while that's happening, or, or after that happens, then the, the main body sets out as well. The, the Lee's army begins to retreat, uh, I guess that would be July 5th, and they, they wait another day uh, before they leave the battlefield. Is that correct? I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I need to change telephones. I hate, I, hate to, I hate to get stymied by technology here. I'll be, I'll be right with you. Just so Okay, that. sure. And while we're waiting for that, we'll comment. I can say all sort of negative things about our guests. Uh, I'm terribly now. sorry. I was on a, on a uh, cordless phone there. Not a problem. So uh, we're back now. Um, uh, so the question is, when, when does the main body of Lee's army leave the Gettysburg battlefield? Uh, again, the, the retreat begins on the 4th, um, you know, as... By the time the, the Confederate wounded are, begin, are up and moving and organized uh, later in the day on the 4th, and the, the main body of the, the Confederate Army also begins to retreat on the 4th. And they follow multiple routes as well. Uh, you couldn't, I guess you couldn't run an entire army of you know, 50,000 people, uh, however many able-bodied ones are left at that point, uh, down a single road. Right, they're using parallel routes for the most part, but all, all along the, a main axis. Now, here, I guess this really gets to the, the heart of the, the question of the, the whole issue of the retreat, which you touched on at the beginning about whether Meade was aggressive enough or not. Um, 
when Meade is in his, or, or when Lee, rather, is, is still in the position on the Gettysburg battlefield at, on Seminary Ridge after the charge of July 3rd, uh, many people have observed that, that if, if Meade had returned the favor and launched you know, Sedgwick's charge across the same plane uh, over the Emmitsburg Road, he would have met the same fate that Pickett did. Uh, you, you don't find many examples in uh, Civil War tactical history of a, a charge across open ground against an entrenched enemy uh, having much success. There's a few exceptions, but that's the rule is that that doesn't work. So it makes sense that, that Meade does not immediately counterattack. But once the retreat begins, at some point, doesn't Lee have his troops marching on these narrow roads with just a rear guard uh, defending where they used to be? Uh, could Meade not have attacked at that point? Well, I, again, I think it's it's some something of to be said here for the idea of 2020 hindsight. He has to determine exactly what routes Lee is, is intending to retreat on and where the best place to conduct these attacks might be. And rather than pursue him and, and attack his rear, you know, if he can bring his army around uh, to, the, to the south and west and attack him in his flank as he's retreating and heading towards Williamsport, that might be to his advantage. It also would give him the time to uh, refit his army and reorganize as he needs to, given his losses. I think again that uh, you know saying that Meade could have launched this uh, devastating counterattack and, and perhaps ended the Army of the Northern Virginia right then and there is a little bit uh, wishful thinking. I think yeah. that his decision to pursue immediately with the cavalry and pick up with his infantry forces and get them organized and try to swing around and come into Lee's flank was probably a, a good decision. Yeah. I would say just personally, I, I, I share that view, and I've, I've written that myself in an article on uh, Lincoln's frustration with Meade and, and the idea of Lincoln taking the field himself. Um, I don't think there was any likelihood of a successful attack on July 4th. But uh, I, it, it's interesting to look at it here in a more microscopic scale and try to figure out exactly why it would not have worked to have pursued uh, or to have attacked immediately. So now, as you point out, once Lee begins his retreat, Meade doesn't follow directly down the same path, but goes separately. He, he knows Lee has to be headed south, so Meade goes south as well, but not not following immediately behind Lee, but but on parallel roads closer to, to Washington, keeping his army interposed between Lee's right. army which, and Washington. Which, which, again, is, you know, uh, is one of this part of this dual mission that Meade is tasked with, that he, that he can't ignore. I mean, had he gone in direct pursuit of the retreating Confederates, it, it would have been difficult for him to meet both aspects of his mission, to go after Lee and to protect Washington and Baltimore. Now, one thing that, that when people argue that, that Meade should have done more, one point they raise is that Meade also had other forces. Um, uh, uh, General French had some additional forces that arrived uh, into the, the, the scene of the campaign. Uh, there are forces coming from, from uh, Harper's Ferry. Uh, there are various new units arriving. What about those reinforcements? Were, were well, they? I, what, 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 how do they fit into this 
I think it's. I think you you just used a very telling word. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think you meant it in necessarily the same context. But when you said new forces, um, that's exactly what they were to a large extent. Our, our new forces and, and green units that were uh, untried and reinforcing a you know an army that had just been involved in a month long campaign and had you know suffered enormous casualties and needed a, a refit of its own. Um, the forces that were available uh, to me that were arriving were not uh, perhaps the best choice to go after a, a hardened army like Lee's army. So Meade chooses then to, to go southward parallel to, to Lee's army, um, but his cavalry is still attacking the, the flanks and rear of the of the retreating Confederates. Absolutely. There's a series of engagements all along the routes, um, some of them are fairly severe engagements. The, you know, the cavalry is, uh, has often been chided, uh, the old saying, you never see a dead cavalryman. And certainly even the opening phases of the Gettysburg battle, the, the casualties in the uh, Buford's Cavalry Division, for example, are, would seem relatively light, but given the nature of their duty on July 1st, it's understandable. During the retreat, however, the cavalry is involved in some serious fighting, and take some serious casualties you know, over the next ten days. In these, and they, they're usually fighting with Confederate cavalry. Is that correct? For the most part, right. The Confederates have, you know, interspersed their uh, retreating columns with their available cavalry and horse artillery units, and will stop to defend at likely places along the route and slow the federal pursuit. And you know, those engagements continue until Lee is ultimately able to recross the Potomac. Now, the when when these cavalry battles take place, is, do they fight mounted, dismounted? What, what are the tactics like in these engagements? Well, there, there are both mounted and dismounted uh, battles that take place along the route. Uh, because of the weather, that seriously limits the mobility of the cavalry in, in a great number of places. For example, the fighting in around Boonesboro is largely dismounted cavalry fighting, because the, the roads and the fields next to the roads are just swamps and quagmires and wouldn't lend themselves to mounted operations. There are mounted operations as well. Um, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, some of the things you don't generally associate with Civil War combat, things like urban fighting, there are mounted cavalry charges up and down some of the main streets of Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, some, some relatively rare events in Civil War history. So the... The, these charges, uh, the, the fighting back and forth, is still between the cavalry on both sides. It's not going to be decisive. Um, did Meade have in mind that he could catch Lee in some way? But was, you know, we, we've talked about some reasons why this wouldn't work. But uh, well, actually, let, let me hold on that question because that's a big question. Really gets to the the heart of our discussion today. So what we'll do is take another short break and come back in just a moment, talk more with our guest, Mike Nugent, on the subject of Lee's retreat and Meade's pursuit after Gettysburg. We'll do that in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk.
In the aftermath of Lee's retreat back to Virginia, Abraham Lincoln wrote to General Meade, Lee's army was within your grasp, and you had only to reach out your hand and seize it. Was Lincoln right? Should Lincoln have sent that letter to Meade? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with one of the co-authors of One Continuous Fight, The Retreat from Gettysburg and the Pursuit of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. He's Mike Nugent, who wrote this book along with Eric Wittenberg and J.D. Petruzzi. It's a description of the events after Gettysburg, and as we talked about in the first two segments, it's something that doesn't get written about in every Gettysburg book. Uh, but there were another 10 days of fighting in the campaign as the wagon train of wounded first made its way back uh, to Williamsport on the Potomac, and then Lee's main army uh, retreated along a different route. Meade's army pursued south along still another route, uh, parallel, but staying interposed between Lee and Washington, not following directly on Lee's uh, footsteps. The um, uh, uh, Mike, the copy of the book that I'm reading here was a, uh, a pre-final copy, a galley's uh, copy, which you mentioned uh, this grew from a an auto tour guide into a 500-page uh, standalone book. Um, and one of the nice things about it is that it is filled with uh, quotations from participants taken from letters and diaries to really get a feel for it. Um, but I did notice uh, a fair number of quotations appeared two or in one case even three times in the book. And I'm, I'm guessing that this was a a pre-final copy, and the final editing may have caught that, maybe whittled it under 500 pages by a little bit, um, if, if you nipped out some of those repetitions. Uh, that's correct. We did catch a couple of uh, errors uh, 
you know, largely, uh, you know, t- either typographical errors or cases where we've used a, uh, a quote uh, once or twice. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, those did make it into our, our first edition. However, that was was all uh, caught and corrected by our second edition. Um, I think that's part of the uh, part of the problem in in having three people involved, uh, as well as obviously our, our publisher, the folks at Savaspeedy. Um, that some of that was uh, just in the flurry of emails back and forth. Some of that was lost in the shuffle, and we did have a couple of errors in there that we would have certainly rather have not seen in the final edition, but it has all been corrected by our second printing. I've, I'm curious how it works to write a book with two co-authors. Uh, did, did one person do most of the writing, or did you divide it up into sections of the book? Well, we did divide it up into sections, and it's certainly something that wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. But being that we were able to uh, send things back and forth via email with Eric in Ohio and J.D. in north-central Pennsylvania and, and me here in Maine, uh, as well as get together several times during the process and uh, travel the actual routes and, and do some of the research, it, we were able to, to do that, uh, to split up the responsibilities and then share that amongst uh, all of us, and then everyone would have a crack at everyone else's work to make suggestions and point out uh, some changes that might want to be made and things like that. Well, it, it, it does work in the sense it's not, uh, there, there are no seams in it. it it's not as, as though when reading you go, ah, here's one guy's voice, here's another guy's voice. It does flow through as a single narrative. So A, a few folks have made that comment, and we, we were all very pleased to hear that because it, it did seem... Uh, Fairly seamless, I think, in its in its final version. Certainly, I think uh, after after several years of, of effort and uh, a number of versions going back and forth, and everyone making changes on uh, all of the various parts of the book, it it, it all includes uh, a little bit from everyone. Now, re- returning to the the story itself, when Lee's main army uh, finally gets uh, out of Pennsylvania into Maryland and approaches Williamsport on the Potomac. Um, Williamsport is is not the goal. Virginia is the goal. He wants to get across the Potomac. And the river at Williamsport is not fordable because of all the rain that you mentioned that tormented the, the, the wagon train and all the people marching. Right. The, the uh, river's at flood stage. The pontoon bridge that they had built uh, earlier at Falling Waters has been destroyed. Uh, there's one operable ferry uh, near where the current road, the current highway crosses uh, in Williamsport today uh, that is used initially. Uh, the soldiers are trying to retreat along that, but Imboden takes command of that right away and reserves that for uh, couriers going back and forth and to begin to evacuate some of the more serious wounded as well as to begin to resupply what he can as far as munitions coming from the other side of the river. So you basically got one raft or two rafts, actually, with a, a wire overhead to uh, pull them back and forth across the river. So th- you can't really move large numbers of troops. No, not at all. It was it was really just for for couriers and to and to begin to attempt to evacuate some of the more seriously wounded. Now, one Union cavalry unit does come upon the the convalescent camp. You'd almost call it at Williamsport before Lee's army gets there uh, and attacks. And gets driven off by the the people that Imboden has present, plus uh, the, the the teamsters, the wagoneers. Uh. Right, the wagoners fight. Yeah, it's really an incredible story, and again, it speaks well for John Imboden. 
and it's something that uh, Steve French goes into in his uh, recent book about Imboden's brigade during the campaign. Um, but he, he, when Imboden arrives in uh, Williamsport, he puts the town to work, basically, uh, caring for the wounded, uh, cooking for the soldiers, doing what they can. He takes all his available personnel, regardless of what their job may have been, all of his walking wounded, and puts them into uh, the defensive positions along those concentric uh, rings of around Williamsport to defend against what is, you know, is expected to be this federal attack, while the rest of the army is still consolidating in the position. Now, I, as I said earlier, I, I sympathize with Meade's decision not to attack on July 4th, and when Meade, when, when Lee gets his whole army in the Williamsport area, he builds a strong defensive position, which Meade also declines to attack. But the first cavalry foray that, against Williamsport that is, is defeated um, before Lee gets his main force back there, it, it does seem to me curious that the Union command doesn't realize, well, here's the choke point, here's the way he has to get across the river. If we can just get there first, uh, you know, throw all three cavalry divisions uh, that we have available at that one point. Uh, did it strike you that that, that was something, an option Meade had? It, it, it certainly, it certainly was is one of the great what ifs. I think of of the way the, this falls out. I think that um, one of the one of the major faults that we we do find is that uh, is with the, the Union cavalry chief Pleasanton, rather than massing his divisions and perhaps um, being able to attack Lee's retreat uh, more effectively, uh, they're, they're not massed. And essentially a third of that of his force, you know, Greg's entire division, is really not engaged in anything significant along the route. So they might have been thrown ahead and used in that, that attack. It, it's uh, certainly, again, one of the great what-ifs. Things may have been significantly different. Lee's army does eventually get back uh, to Williamsport or to the area, uh, and which is not far from the Antietam battlefield. Actually, there. Right. It was passed within a few miles of the Antietam battlefield. So, so you might have almost had a second Antietam, like a second Bull Run. Uh, what happens? Uh, what does Lee do when he gets his army to the river, uh, since they can't cross immediately? Well, the terrain around Williamsport is uh, is really worth a, a good hard look, and whether that's uh, examining a good topographic map or ideally standing on the ground itself, it's it's circled by concentric rings of of high ground, and sometimes they're they're very subtle. There there may only be a difference of a few feet in elevation, but it's this concentric these concentric rings around the town that go all the way uh, from above the town in an arc down below falling water that are, is just custom made for a defensive operation. Lee, uh, going back to his old nickname as the King of Spades, reinforces these natural defensive positions with gun emplacements, with rifle pits, and really makes a formidable, formidable defensive position. Walking that ground, it's pretty clear that attacking that would have been uh, just potentially disastrous, because you would literally be fighting uh, yards at a time only to come upon the next position in these, along these concentric rings. 
so the the army is dug in, and, and this is a federal army that remembers what happened at Fredericksburg when they absolutely. And this has the potential. You know, I don't think it's I don't think it's going too far out on a limb to say this has the potential to be Fredericksburg all over again, essentially negating the victory at Gettysburg on the first, second, and third. The uh, now in your your concluding section, you you quote a number of participants on both sides as to what might have happened uh, uh, if there had been an attack or or their recommendations whether uh, Meade should have attacked. And uh, the consensus seems to be that, that he should not have. Uh, uh, he, in fact, calls the Council of War his core commanders, and they decide jointly not to attack Lee's army dug in here at the, uh, uh, at the river. But there are those who say that, that he should have. What, what do they argue? Well, I, I think that uh, uh, there's a great number of, of uh, people who do criticize me. However, when you look at who those, where that criticism is coming from, it's generally not coming from his, his senior infantry commanders, his senior cavalry commanders. It's coming from uh, either other people within the military or people who aren't in the military and don't really understand the, the realities of what they're facing. Uh, one of the people that we quote, for example, is uh, a fellow that's the surgeon from the 154th New York Infantry who's very blunt in his criticism, uh, in a letter that he writes to his wife, he has a, a great quote that uh, our army is an anomaly, that it's an army of lions commanded by jackasses. However, this is coming from a surgeon who perhaps doesn't quite understand the realities that is facing an infantry and a cavalry officer faced with this formidable defensive position. Well, now one of the people who criticizes Meade here uh, is, as, as you point out, somebody who was not there and is, in fact, a, a civilian, um, but it's Abraham Lincoln, uh, who, who makes the argument that uh, in a letter that he writes uh, for Meade, uh, that, that if you cannot defeat him here uh, after he's lost a battle, you cannot defeat Lee after he's lost a battle, he's north of the river, he's without his ammunition, um, if you can't beat him here, how are you ever going to beat him south of the river? Uh, and without uh, that strikes me as a rather strong argument. Actually, um, it doesn't necessarily. Maybe the answer is, uh, well, you're not going to beat him in either place. Uh, it doesn't. He doesn't necessarily say you will beat him north of the river. Uh, what, what's your thought on that? I, I think again that the criticism of Meade is it's 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 very easy to do in hindsight, having to make the decisions on the spot knowing what he knew at the time, looking at the terrain, standing on the ground looking at the terrain, realizing what a formidable position he has in front of him, uh, I think his decisions are, are sound, that the criticism against him is, is largely unfounded. Um, it, it's one thing to sit in Washington and look at a map and see, say how easy this would have been or say at least how possible it would have been, and if you can't do it here, where can you do it, like Abraham Lincoln did. It's quite another to be on the field and have to make those decisions and realizing that you may be throwing your army away against you know, a, a still viable Confederate force in a very good position. Well, I wonder if, if then, in a, in a sense, um, Lincoln is actually correct, uh, uh, his actual words, uh, it says, if you could not safely attack Lee last Monday, 
how can you possibly do so south of the river when you can take with you very few more than two-thirds of the force you then had in hand? It would be unreasonable. That's, that's an excellent point. And, and I guess the point is that, that Lincoln actually turns out to be right, because when Grant does attack Lee the following year, uh, the casualties are enormous, and he doesn't defeat him on the battlefield. Uh, but uh, this long-running question of what should have happened will have to run even longer. We're out of time once again, as happens too soon each week. Um, but, Mike, thank you very much for being on the show. And I oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.